Hey everybody, this is Farmer D with the Citizen Farmers Podcast, bringing you inspiration, knowledge, and resources to help you grow healthy food, build thriving communities, and give back to the earth. For the past 25 years, I've been designing and building farms and gardens from backyards to agrihoods, and I'm excited to share my passion and experience for growing food and community with you. Let's dig in. Welcome back to part two of Growing Equals Patience. In this episode, we're going to dig into crop rotation and companion planting. But first, I want to start introducing you to the plant families so we can get some context. One family of plants we call legumes. These are the lungs of the garden. They're the ones, the nitrogen-fixing plants, the peas, the beans, you know, a lot of the cover crops like vetch and clover and lobelia and things like that that are nitrogen-fixing legumes. So all, all your peas and beans are legumes. They're really great because they actually help feed the soil because they're doing all that nitrogen fixation. So legumes are one family of plant that we'll be putting in the garden rotation. Another that is uh, the brassicas, brassica family. And the brassica family are a big family of all of your broccolis and cauliflowers and cabbages and on and on. There's a lot of leafy green vegetables and flowering veggies like the broccolis and cauliflowers and kales and collards that fall into this family. And they are all pretty susceptible to the cabbage looper, which is a nasty little green worm that turns into a white butterfly that ravages brassica plants. Other things, flea beetles and all kinds of things like to eat brassicas. So you definitely want to rotate your brassicas. And then your onions, all your alliums, all the onions and leeks and garlic, and also all your root crops are another category of family of plants. And they tend to be actually pretty pest resilient. In fact, a lot of the alliums are really good actually for deterring pests. So they're a good companion plant, which we'll talk a bit about also in the garden. And then last is the the Solanaceae, the nightshade family. This is your tomatoes, your peppers, your eggplant, your potatoes. These also have very specific issues, especially around disease. They tend to be very prone to blights and other diseases, and they also have a a suite of pests that like to eat them, like the tomato hornworm and a bunch of other bugs that like to eat the the nightshades. So so those are kind of the the four main families. And then the other is the cucurbit family, the cucurbits. This is your cucumbers and your melons and your squash and your pumpkins. It's also a pretty big family. And they're, they're another one that, you know, you want to rotate as well because there are things like cucumber beetles and squash bugs that just love to feast on the cucurbits. A lot of people, they just don't know about plant families. And they're really interesting, actually, as you start to explore the history of all these plant families from where they come from around the world and how they've been bred over generations. It's fascinating stuff. So let's talk a little bit about crop rotation. Crop rotation is a really important element of organic gardening. And the, the reason why crop rotation is so important is it deals with a couple of key things. One is it helps with pest and disease control. Okay, By moving your crops around the farm and the garden, it makes it a little more difficult for the pests and disease to, to find them. If you plant the same thing over and over again in the same place, the pests and disease will become so overrun that you'll have a really hard time growing a successful crop. The other thing that crop rotation does is it helps reduce the impact on the soil because you're, you're, you know, some of your crops are pretty heavy feeders and they're taking a lot of nutrients out of the soil. So moving that around and putting things in that are going to regenerate the soil in between is another really important aspect. 
And so this, this ties to nutrient management and soil erosion. So let's dive into some crop rotation tips. I've got a bunch of plans in the book, kind of crop rotation plans that you can look at. I'll just give you the simple walkthrough of it. There's a three-year and a four-year crop rotation plan in the book. And I mean, the basic principle here is you just want to try to not plant the same thing in the same place, right? So, you know, for the, as long as possible, right? Several years is, is ideal. So, you know, on a four-year rotation, what I'd like to do is, is you, you plant your legumes, right? Your peas and beans in one bed, right? And then in that same bed, in the next rotation, those come out, you plant your brassicas. Plant your collard, your kale, your cabbage, and then the brassicas come out, and you follow the brassicas with your tomatoes or your peppers, your eggplant, your nightshades. And then after your nightshades come out, you plant your onions and your root vegetables in that bed after the nightshades. Okay, and then you can incorporate your cucurbits, your squash and cucumbers in there as appropriate, kind of in between. So another way to look at that is is you could do your brassicas and your legumes kind of together. Okay, and then your nightshades, and then your root crops, and then your lettuces, your squash, all your leafy greens that are not brassicas, and then you come back again to your brassicas and legumes, your nightshades, your root crops, and then your squash, lettuce, and things like that. Now, one thing that's really important to note in crop rotation is adding a cover crop in there as well. So that's your basic rotation kind of basics of just Making sure that you don't plant the same thing in the same place over and over again, kind of mix it up, keep track, and then, you know, throw some cover crops in there, you know, as as often as you can. I'd say at least, you know, one cover crop cycle every couple of years in your garden. So, you know, one bed, each bed should have a cover crop for a season, you know, every couple of years. And, you know, ideally, you know, every, every year, you know, a bed is going one of the seasons throughout the growing years is a cover crop. I mentioned a little bit in the last chapter, in the sowing chapter, about mixing vegetables in with your cover crops, which is another way to get kind of the best of both worlds, where you grow a cover crop like a vetch, a clover, a rye, but you also throw some brassicas in there. So you can also do that where you kind of do like this legume brassica mix. So you're getting, you know, you're getting some soil fertility improvement. You're harvesting your brassicas out. So you're picking your kales and your collards and your turnips, your radishes. And once those all come out, the cover crop takes over. You still got a cover crop in there and you plow that under and, and you follow it with your next rotation, which would be your nightshades, your tomatoes and peppers and such. In fact, you can even just lay the cover crop down. You don't even have to plow it under and do a no-till if you're going to put tomatoes and peppers transplanted right into the cover crop. Okay, so that's a bit on crop rotation. We talked a little bit about nutrients in there, so let me just highlight that there's a neat little chart in the book about heavy feeders, medium feeders, and light feeders. And there's a simple way to to look at this. So your heavy feeders require just more nutrients, right? They require more nitrogen, more fertilizer, because they need it to, you know, to grow. They're, They're a heavier feeder. Okay, so we know we have light, medium, and heavy feeders. You want to turn up the the quantity of fertilizer based on what you're growing there, and then just starting to understand the basic principles of NPK and organic fertilizers versus synthetic fertilizers, and trying to get your application rates dialed in with your soil requirements based on your soil tests. That's what I want to kind of encourage you to start to think about and move towards. Fertilizer is a confusing system to understand. So I want to try to just help give some of the basics on how to understand NPK, 
nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium as it relates to buying organic fertilizers in particular. So let me just back up on this for a minute and give you a little overview. The basic principle is that when we grow food, those plants take nutrients out of the soil that feed us, right? That go into that food, that build up that crop, that ultimately provide us with those nutrients. We need to replenish those nutrients back into the soil so that the next crop that we plant can get the nutrients it needs because the soil does not have those nutrients innately in it, right? We have to add to it. We have to steward. We have to compost. We have to fertilize. We have to cover crop and green manure, right? That's part of our critical role as gardeners and stewards is to regenerate the soil. So let me just give you a quick overview of the six main nutrients that plants require in pretty large quantities, okay? Number one, carbon, and that's free. That comes from the air, CO2. Number two, hydrogen. That's free. comes from the water. Number three, oxygen. comes from the water and the air, okay? So carbon, hydrogen, oxygen are the three ones that we get for free. The fourth one is nitrogen. Now, nitrogen helps plants make the proteins that it needs to produce new tissues. Okay, in nature, nitrogen is often in short supply. And so plants have figured out ways to kind of take up as much nitrogen as possible. If there's too much nitrogen available, the plant may grow too many leaves and not produce fruit or flowers, right? So, you know, nitrogen is one of those nutrients that really drives plant growth, leafy growth in particular, foliage. And then number five is phosphorus. Phosphorus stimulates root growth. It helps the plants to produce buds and flowers, and it generally just improves the overall vitality of a plant and increases the size of its seeds. It does that basically by helping to transfer energy from one part of the plant to another. Now, for plants to absorb phosphorus, it's really important that the pH of the soil is balanced, kind of in that 6.5 to 6.8 range, okay? And then having a living soil with active biology and organisms also helps to increase the availability of phosphorus to a plant. And number six is potassium. Potassium is really great for just overall vigor, helps the plant make carbohydrates, it helps provide disease resistance and regulate metabolic activities. Really important for overall health and vigor. Okay, so we've got the three main ones there, right? The macronutrients are nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium, N, P, and K. We're going to come back to those in a minute. The other major nutrients that really matter when it comes to growing plants, not quite in the same quantities, but really important in the right ratios, are calcium, which is used by plants in their cell membranes. It helps to the plant to develop its structure, and it plays a really critical role in plant health. That's calcium. Number two, magnesium. That's a critical component for helping plants to process sunlight and really critical uh, nutrient in the need in the soil. And the last one's sulfur. And then there's these micronutrients that are often overlooked in conventional farming, but really critical in organic farming. And so, you know, those key ones are things like boron, copper, iron, zinc, molybdenum, chlorine, and manganese. Okay, so micronutrients. Now, there's a big difference between organic and synthetic fertilizers, okay? Organic fertilizers come from natural materials, things like from plant meals, bone meals, blood meals, composted manures, mineral deposits, whereas synthetic fertilizers are made through a chemical process using raw materials. 
creating synthetic fertilizers using chemical processes. Now, organic fertilizers tend to be more about feeding the soil. They're not as water-soluble as synthetic fertilizers, so they take a little bit more time to become available to the plants. So you do want to apply these a little bit further ahead. You know, the fall is a really good time to put down your organic nutrients. The benefit of organic fertilizers over synthetics in particular is that they really feed the microorganisms. They stimulate the biology and the structure of the soil. And soil microbes play a really important role in converting these organic fertilizers into available soluble nutrients that plants can absorb. So having organic fertilizer paired with compost really helps provide all those primary, secondary, and micronutrients that your plants need. Synthetic fertilizers, while they are more water-soluble, the plant can take them out much quicker, but they really don't do much of anything. In fact, they destroy the soil biology. They, they do nothing to improve the soil structure or soil life, so they're really not good for long-term sustainability. Because they're so water-soluble, they tend to leach out into the streams and ponds and waterways, and so you'll lose those fertilizers into the environment, which also is, is not good for the environment or for your pocketbook. So we're really focusing on organic nutrients here, okay? When we start talking about fertilizers, what you'll typically find are fertilizers are typically defined by their NPK ratio. So you'll find fertilizers that have different numbers. And so if there's a really high N number, like a 10-0-0, for example, that fertilizer is pure nitrogen, right? It's really feeding just the nitrogen nutrients into your soil, to your plants. So that's for just pure leafy vegetative growth. A more balanced fertilizer might be something more like a 555 or a 444 or a 574 or a 462 or something like that. It's got a, some nitrogen. It's also got some high phosphorus and, and some potassium. So the basic way to understand what that means is that a 100-pound bag of fertilizer, right, that has, let's say, like a 462 fertilizer means you've got four pounds of nitrate, nitrogen, six pounds of phosphate, phosphorus, and two pounds of potash, potassium. And the balance of that 100 pounds is essentially a filler, so to speak. Now it's, it comes to this question of, okay, well, what do I do with that, Farmer D? Because I'm still confused, right? And now, like I said, fertilizer is confusing. I've been doing this a long time, and I still stumble on these formulas and how to back into, well, how much do I actually use? Here's kind of what you can do. Essentially, what you're looking at is you want to try to figure out how many pounds of fertilizer you need to apply. And it's confusing because there's both like pounds of fertilizer, pounds of actual material, and then there's pounds of nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium. So in order to figure out the right amount of fertilizer to apply, to determine the actual amount of each nutrient equivalent in the bag of fertilizer, you basically just multiply the weight of the bag by the percentage of that nutrient, okay, equivalent in decimal form. Now here's where we should bust out our calculators and start to do some math together. Okay, so we're going to figure out if I want to apply, let's say my soil test says I need about a pound of nitrogen per thousand square feet. Okay, and I've got this 25 pound bag of 462 fertilizer. We're just going to focus on nitrogen for now. We're not going to make it more complicated than it already is. And so I say, okay, so if I want to get four pounds of nitrogen, then I want to divide the one pound of nitrogen that I'm supposed to apply divided by 0 0.04. Okay. So when I say 1 divided by 0 0.04, that is 25. 
So I need to apply that entire 25 pound bag on a thousand square feet to get one pound of nitrogen in the soil. How much phosphorus then do we apply, right? So one divided by 0.07 is 14 pounds. So we would have applied 14 pounds to get a pound. So we actually got more than that, right? Because we applied 25 pounds. So how do we do that? I think we do 0.07 times 25, 1.75 pounds of phosphorus down. So what's key is, is you want to look at what your soil requirements are and find a fertilizer blend that matches it. So if it's saying, hey, you know, you need you know, that ratio between NP and K and your soil test recommendation, you know, if it's 333 evenly, then you can find a fertilizer that's even NPK. If you need more phosphorus, less nitrogen, and less potassium, then a 4.62 might be perfect, right? And so when you do soil tests, you, know, you, you designate what crop you're trying to grow. And you, you can adjust according to, are you growing a crop that needs more nitrogen because it's a leafy vegetable? Are you growing a fruiting crop that needs more, more phosphorus and potassium? You know, so go with a fertilizer. And that's typically how fertilizers are sold, right? Like a tomato fertilizer, a fertilizer for a kind of all-purpose vegetables. The basics I want to try to convey to you here are looking at those ratios between NP and K, nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium, saying, what does my soil need? And if I'm really deficient in one of those, I want to make sure the fertilizer I apply is high in that. And you want to try to target the amount of fertilizer you put down to meet what your soil test is recommending. And then you want to try to get it as balanced across NPK as possible to get those nutrients into the soil that you need in the proportions that you need them, okay? So I hope this helped clarify and not further confuse fertilizers. Obviously, you can be pretty intuitive here, and like I've said in the past, add compost, add fertilizer, organic fertilizer, be intuitive about it, you know, a little bit more often than too much all at once. But if you want to start to really get more precise and dial it in really tight, the more specific you can get, the better, right? Because you'll just have that little bit of turning the dial closer to optimal for different particular crops, the, the higher the likelihood of success is. If you're that kind of person and you really want to get super dialed in, then you'll start to learn which crops like which amounts of fertilizer and adjust accordingly in your garden. So when you know you're planting a particular crop, you can kind of get that fertilizer that it really likes and get that ratio, kind of the amount of pounds that you put down for a bed right and, you know, take good notes because for next year it'll be easier when you know. And again, if you want to be intuitive and a little bit more casual about it, that's fine. Don't let this be a deterrent, you know, don't let perfection be the enemy of good here, right? But if you really do want to get more precise and learn how this works and balance your soil chemistry and nutrient mix to really optimize it, then this is something to dig into a little bit more. And, and we're just scratching the surface. Soil chemistry is so dynamic. It's so complex. It's so complicated. There are so many different things going on. And so, you know, we're constantly tuning the dials on biology, on chemistry, on nutrients, on water, on mulches, on cover crops, on what tools and how we dig and, and, and alter the garden, the soil structure. This is the orchestra and the instruments that we can play with as gardeners to really optimize our soils to grow healthy, nutrient-dense food organically.
That was a lot of information. I hope that helps. And this is a topic we'll come back to because we're just scratching the surface of the soil. And there's a lot to till and to grow when it comes to this topic. So look forward to digging in deeper on that one. The next section we want to talk about in the growing equals patience is about companion planting. Okay. I call this uh, friends and foes. And the, the principle here is that, you know, certain plants do well with other plants and some plants do not so well with other plants, right? And it's kind of this, this friends and foes thing. And it's based on a couple of ideas, okay? So one is that when you certain plants do well together because they share space well together, right? One grows tall and has deep roots like a carrot. Another grows wide and has shallow roots like a lettuce and carrots and lettuce like to grow together. So they share space well in the bed. That's one reason. Another is that they can be symbiotic with each other, right? So think about like corn, beans, and squash, the three sisters. They're grown together because they're symbiotic. The beans help provide nutrients to the corn and climb up the corn. The corn serves as a trellis. The squash spreads out wide and covers the ground and suppresses weeds and keeps critters out from getting into the corn and beans because it's spiky. So those three are a great example of a symbiotic relationship. So there's a lot of these really cool symbiotic relationships. And you know, I'll start by highlighting a couple of what I call kind of model citizen plants. There's a few that just are like awesome plants no matter what. You don't have to worry about if they're good or bad. They're just good. Things like marigolds and basically all your herbs, thyme, marjoram, oregano, tarragon, basil. These are just awesome plants to have around the garden. You know, most of your flowering plants help attract beneficials, and these herbs in particular do as well. So let's just go through pretty quickly. I'll give you, there's, there's a big chart on page one, 114 and 115 in the book that outlines the whole kind of companion planting. But I'll just give a few highlights to give you the idea of some of the more popular veggies and who their friends are and who their foes are. So broccoli. Broccoli does really well with alliums, with any of the onions. They do fine with like beets and carrots and any herbs really around broccoli, especially things like dill, mint, chamomile, rosemary, nasturtiums do well around broccoli. So those are things that, that, that like to grow with broccoli. The things that don't do so well with broccoli, tomatoes, strawberries, and peppers and broccoli don't get along as well. Let's talk about beans. Beans do well, again, with like with brassicas, with beets, with carrots, with corn, with cucumbers, with eggplant. They do well with peas and potatoes and radishes and squash and strawberries and tomatoes. They're pretty friendly. Beans are pretty friendly. They don't actually love onions and alliums, and they don't do so well with peppers and sunflowers, okay? Carrots, as I mentioned, they do really well with lettuce. They do good with beans and leeks. Carrots and onions do well together. Carrots grow with peas. They can actually grow with potatoes and radishes and then and tomatoes. Tomatoes and carrots are awesome together. Kind of growing the tomatoes on the edges of the bed, tomatoes in the middle, even throwing some lettuce in there. It's an awesome mix. There's actually a great book called Carrots Love Tomatoes. That's an awesome book on companion planting. Carrots don't love dill and parsley. Cabbage. Cabbage does well with a bunch of stuff like beans and cucumbers and dill and kale and lettuce and onions and potatoes. They like uh, sage and thyme. They don't like strawberries and tomatoes. Eggplants do well with pretty much anything. They, they don't have any major foes, but they, they do 
especially well with peppers, with beans and lettuce, spinach and tomatoes. Cucumbers. I like to grow cucumbers with sunflowers. They like to climb up them. They also can do well when they're trellised. They can do well with lettuce. They can do well growing with corn, with beans, with cabbage. You know, I'm noticing I didn't include this in the book, but one of my favorites with cucumbers is dill. You know, so you can actually, I learned this when I apprenticed with Hugh Lovell, we would plant a row of dill right down the middle of the cucumber bed and then plant cucumbers all kind of diagonal alongside that row of planted dill seed. What happened is the dill would grow really tall, kind of canopy over the cucumbers. And when the cucumbers came in, the dill came in. And so there you had your dill pickles like ready to go. So you'd pick your cukes, you'd pick your dill, and you'd go make pickles. So that one's a good one. I should have added that to the book. That was a miss. Garlic is a pretty amazing plant. It does great with fruit trees, roses, and tomatoes. Doesn't do great with cabbages, with peas, with strawberries, with beans. You get the idea. So I'm going to let you go to the book. I won't get too much in. I'll just share one more. Maybe let's do tomatoes because everybody loves tomatoes. I mentioned lettuce and carrots are awesome with tomatoes. Another really good one is borage. Borage is a really cool, beautiful plant. has an edible flower. You can eat the leaves too. It's a little little spiky, a little like rough. It tastes a bit like cucumber, but it attracts bees like crazy. So it's an awesome plant for helping with pollination for plants like tomatoes. Tomatoes also do well with uh, melons, with celery, with dill, with nasturtiums, with onions, with parsley. They do well with peppers, radishes, spinach, and thyme. Tomatoes don't do so well with beets, with most of the brassicas, with corn, with kale, with peas, and potatoes. Okay, so without getting too in the weeds here, that gives you a pretty good sense. And there's plenty of great charts out there online to find out more about companion planting. And so that covers quite a bit about our Growing Equals Patience chapter. You know, I'd say the last thing I'll finish with is like some tools that are good to have. You know, I think, you know, a hat is a good one because you're going to spend a lot of time in the garden. This is this is the chapter where you're spending, this is the, the part of the life cycle where you're really out in the garden, breaking a good sweat and, and doing the hard work. So, you know, a good hat, good shoes, some good quality hose, some cultivating tools, some good pruners, those Felco number twos, some gloves. You know, some of the plants that we're dealing with are a little, a little spiky, things like squash and, and okra and other things that are comfrey that you might want to have gloves when you're, when you're working with and weeds, some of the weeds, thistles and things like that. A good little sprayer for your foliar sprays and maybe even a compost tea maker would be a good thing to have. So that's it for the Growing Equals Patients chapter. Thank you for joining the Citizen Farmers Movement, and I look forward to next time. Till then, enjoy your time in the garden. Join the Citizen Farmers community. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook. For more information, check out today's show notes. Special thanks to our pilot sponsor, Netafim, the company that first brought drip irrigation to the world over 50 years ago. This podcast was co-produced and recorded by Ben Bernstein. Our audio editor is Stephanie Lamond. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Citizen Farmers Podcast with Farmer D. Until next time, enjoy your time in the garden.